0: there. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. I was prompted to write a sermon on the subject of the fear of God because a while back I was talking with one of the members of the congregation where we worship, and she was just mentioning how unbelievers have often thrown in her face the fact that what the Bible says about the fear of God is contradictory. Uh, you know, on the one hand, the Bible commands us to fear the Lord. You get verses like, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Or blessed is the man who fears the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And in the other hand, we're often reminded that the most frequent command in the Bible is, do not fear, do not be afraid. Or you get the First John 4, and we're told, God is love. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. And so this whole fear of God thing, it's like is the Bible saying, two different things. And anyway, I've chosen Exodus 20, verses 18 through 20, as our text, because encapsulated in one verse, namely verse 20, is this apparent contradiction. So that's where our focus is going to be, but we'll read the section from chapter 19 and 20 to get the bigger picture before us. And... um, We'll, we'll read from verse, from chapter 19, we'll actually pick it up um, at verse 16, but let me just give a few words of introduction. The Israelites have just been released from uh, Egypt, they've just come through the Red Sea, and now they're uh, in the desert at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God is going to appear on Mount Sinai, and he's told them in the, uh, verses 10 and following, Nobody can cross this boundary at the foot of the mountain. If you do, you will die. Do not pass this place. And so now in verse 16, we'll pick up our reading and we'll hear the word of the Lord. And we'll read the Ten Commandments in abbreviated form as we go through. Verse 16 of chapter 19. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings. And a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Verse 12, uh, verse seven. "You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse eight, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Verse 12, Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Then, verse 18 is our text. Now, all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. There ends our reading of God's word. Let's ask for his blessing upon it. Father, we give you thanks for this account of you meeting with your people at Mount Sinai to establish this covenant relationship with them. We pray that you would now be present among us by the power of your spirit to teach us about what it means to fear you, the great, the true, the one and only living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we commonly talk about God, about believing in God or not believing in God, about loving God or hating God, about trusting God or doubting God. But it seems like we're not so quick to use the language of fearing God. It seems like an uncomfortable thing to talk about maybe even an unwelcome way to describe our relationship with God. And yet the Bible contains hundreds of references to the fear of God or the fear of the Lord. And so it's a very important concept for us to explore. And so I want to look with us this afternoon, at the fear of God. And we want to consider, first of all, the cause of the kind of fear that the Israelites experienced there at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then secondly, the kind of fear they experienced. Third, the kind of fear that is expected of the people of God. And fourth, how do we enliven this kind of fear In our own hearts. Let's consider, first of all, the cause of the fear the Israelites experienced. Have you ever watched as the forces of nature just come bearing down upon the area you're in with an overwhelming display of power? I remember back in the spring of 2022, there was that direko, that storm that came down the 401 corridor. And its winds were, I didn't know this at the time, but winds gusting of up to like 190 kilometers. But we were at home and I said to the girls, let's go upstairs where we can get a better view and look at this storm. So we can see out the second story window. And when we got up there, I saw the winds churning and it was way more powerful than I thought. And I said, girls, this isn't safe, let's get downstairs. And we looked through the patio door and the fence went in this snake-like motion and laid flat on the ground and our lawn furniture got picked up and thrown in the neighbor's yard and the trampoline went up in the air and lift, sat down again. And I said, guys, get away from any glass. This is scary. Something could come flying through the window and hurt us. And what I thought would be a neat experience filled us with fear. Or think of an even scarier experience I watched a documentary on the Kilauea volcano of 2018 when it erupted in Hawaii. And there you see these red-hot rivers of lava flowing down the volcano sides, over the fields, over the roadways, into people's yards, through the forests, onto roads, simultaneously burning and burying everything as it flows Lava bombs are launching into the air, smoke rising kilometers into the air, these cracks appearing in the road and you get this fog. It's like a word that comes from a combination of volcano and smog. You get this fog steaming up out of the cracks in the ground and it gives you this eerie feel. Well, a news anchor was interviewing a local lady who had a house right where this lava was flowing and asked her what she thought. And she said, I never want to see that again, but I would never have wanted to miss it either. I never want to see that again, but I would not have wanted to miss it either. Why the mixed reaction?" Why, why is she saying seem, two seemingly opposite things? Well, she doesn't want to see it again because she knows how small she is before this monstrous force that can destroy her. But she didn't want to miss the sight either because it was a spectacularly awesome sight that was etched in her memory Forever. Well, this is very similar to what the Israelites experienced on Mount Sinai. There might not have been lava flowing, but there was fire along with a host of the other forces of nature, which came bearing down upon that mountain face. And it was an experience far more overwhelming than a direco or a volcano. God himself is descending on Mount Sinai in the most personal encounter that anyone will have with God Short of the incarnation, we see here that God appears in this theophany. This, when He appears in visible form through the the nature, the create the the powers of nature which He created and controls, and He's present in the thunder and lightning, which is a display of His power above in the heavens. And the most recent memory the Israelites have of thunder and lightning is in the seventh plague when God sent a storm that knocked down the crops in their field and even stripped all the leaves off the trees. And then there's the earthquake, a sign of God's supreme power on earth below. No man can budge even a big boulder, right? But God's causing this whole mountain to tremble and shake, showing his power. And then there's the smoke, We read in chapter 19, verse 18, that Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. The smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. The only other place that figure of speech is used is in Genesis 19 to describe the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This smoke ascending like a furnace is a sign of God's judgment and wrath. You see, God is about to give his people the law summarized in the Ten Commandments. And he's teaching his people that if you break covenant with me, if you disobey my law, you will face my judgment like Sodom and Gomorrah did. So there's the thunder and lightning, the earthquake, the smoke, and then there's the fire. Yahweh descends on this mountain in fire. And we might be drawn to go close up to a nice contained campfire or a fire in a wood stove. But when you've got this raging inferno, it fills you with fear and you stand back. And that's symbolizing God's blazing purity and his powerful holiness. And finally, we hear the trumpet. There's this loud sound of a trumpet which is often blown to announce the arrival of a king. And in this case, the king who is arriving is Yahweh himself. The one true living God is arriving, descending on Mount Sinai, meeting with his people there on the desert floor. So, we've got all these forces of nature simultaneously slamming against the side of Mount Sinai in this overwhelming display of God's power. And these Israelites are completely vulnerable before these powerful forces of nature, which are controlled by God, created and controlled by God. They're standing unprotected on the desert floor. All they got to protect themselves is their tent. If you think about it, right, Yahweh God has just used all his power to devastate Egypt in the ten plagues, and they've seen how mighty he is, and now they're standing before the same God, showing the same display of power... And they're completely vulnerable. Their tent is no more protection for them than that thin plastic produce bag is for your bag of bananas if you were to step on it. They could be destroyed by this power of God. That's why they are filled with fear. They're unprotected before this display of God's majesty and power. And verse 18 tells us the people are trembling. Not just the mountain is trembling, the people are trembling. Their knees are knocking. And if you were to turn to Hebrews 12, verse 21, we would read this. And so terrifying was the sight that even Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. So we can understand why the Israelites are filled with fear. This great theophany, this great display of God's power. But what kind of fear are they experiencing? That's our second point. What kind of fear is this? There are different kinds of fears, right? There are the healthy fears that keep us away from danger. Like the fear of something hot. We don't want to touch it. Or the fear of a venomous snake or a dangerous animal and we keep our distance, right? There's those healthy fears that help us steer clear of danger. Or there are those fun kind of fears. Maybe some of you like to go to Canada's Wonderland and go on a ride and it's a little scary and you get a real spook from it and it's kind of fun. But here, the Israelites are experiencing the fear of sheer dread They are scared that they are going to be destroyed by God's wrath and judgment against their sin. You see, they're sinful and they know it. They haven't been walking around in the desert for very long. And three days after being released from Egypt, they're complaining about not having any water. After week six, they're complaining that it was better off in Egypt where they had pots of meat and all kinds of bread. And now they're hearing God's law. And it's convicting them of their own sin. You see, God's law is good. But when God's good law is applied to a sinful people, it puts the spotlight on our sin. And when you get a spotlight, it doesn't clean up any dirt that it exposes. It just shows it's there. That's what the law does. Romans 3 verse 20 says, through the law we become conscious of sin. And then Romans 4 verse 15 says, the law brings about wrath. The law both states what is wrong and it prescribes the penalty, death. And the Israelites know they've done wrong. They know they deserve death and they see God's power before them and they know It can put them to death and wipe them out, just like it wiped out Pharaoh and his army. And God had said precisely that would happen if they crossed the boundary and tried to touch the mountain. That's why they're trembling in their boots. You know, we see throughout Scripture that whenever people have a close-up encounter with God, they are acutely aware They really recognize, they have a heightened sense of their own sinfulness. Think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. What does we read after they ate the forbidden fruit? They hid their face because they were afraid to look at God. Or think of Moses when God appears to him in the burning bush. He hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Or the prophet Isaiah, he saw the glory of God and said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Or think of Peter's early encounter with Jesus while in his fishing boat. Jesus told him after fishing all night, Just go ahead in the middle of the day and throw out your nets. And Peter did so, and they caught so many fish that it sank two boats when they tried to haul it in. And when Peter saw the power of Jesus, what was his response? Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter had a heightened sense of his own sin as he saw the power and the glory of Jesus. And you can believe he was trembling as he spoke. So the Israelites are filled with this kind of dread, and they don't want to draw near to God. But what are we to think of this kind of fear, this fear of dread? Is this any way to live in relationship with someone? To always be dead scared of them? No. You can't flourish in relationship with somebody who you're scared of and stand in dread of. You will wither away and die. This is an unhealthy fear. This is the kind of fear that a child has if his father is abusive. He wants to get away from such a father. This kind of fear drives us away, puts us distance between us and someone else. And this kind of fear, the fear of dread, is rooted in sin. That's seen clearly in an atheist Christopher Hitchens' response. Fox News asked Christopher Hitchens, who's one of these uh, four horsemen of the New Atheist Movement, what he thought about the possibility of God's existence, and it's quite telling what he says. He says, I quote, I think it would be rather awful if it was true. There was a permanent, total, round-the-clock divine supervision and invigilation of everything you did You would never have a waking uh, moment when you're not being watched and controlled and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. He goes on to say it'd be like living in North Korea where you're always watched by a cruel tyrant who's ready to beat you any moment if you make a wrong move. This is not the kind of fear that our God wants us to have of him the Israelites don't want to have this kind of fear of God either. They can't bear the thought of living with this kind of dread. And so they say to Moses in verse 19, you go speak with this God, Moses, and we'll hear, or sorry, you speak with us, Moses, and we'll hear, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. You see, they don't like this fear. They're trying to get away And get out of this fear. They're looking for a mediator. And asking Moses to be the one who stands in between them and God. And Moses alleviates their fears. As he willingly steps in as mediator. And so he says in verse 20. Do not fear. And then in verse 21 we're told the people stand afar off. And Moses approaches God. But we're skipping over the second half of verse 20. Moses just told the people, do not fear. And then he seems to contradict himself in what he says next. For God has come to test you that his fear may be before you. This might appear to be a glaring contradiction. In the same breath in which he tells them not to fear... He tells them the whole point of this theophany, this whole the whole point of God's power on display at this mountain is to put the fear of God in you. Is this actually a contradiction? No. Because God's word is trustworthy. There would never be a contradiction in it. We simply need to understand how language works. And then we realize there is no contradiction here at all. We have homonyms. We have also contronyms. I had not heard of a contronym before, but a contronym is a word that is spelled the same, pronounced the same, sounds the same, yet it has two completely opposite meanings. And I listed a bunch on your handout there, but think of just one contronym, the word left. How many people... Are at your birthday party. Oh, you text back, six left. Are you saying that six have departed or that six remain? So you can use the word left to mean the same, uh, the two opposite things. And context helps us clarify. Same with this word fear. It can mean two very opposite things. It can mean, awe and reverence and respect, or it can mean dread and sheer fear, terror, horror that you are going to die or be harmed. Well, it's important to note that both the fear of sheer dread and horror and the fear of awe and reverence and respect, though they're opposites in some ways, they have one thing in common, and that is they will both make you feel weak need, and can cause you to tremble and shake. Something that horrifies you can set you a shaking. But something that's absolutely grand and beautiful can also just set you shaking and trembling in your boots as it were. Think of a groom on his wedding day, as he watches his bride come down the aisle, he can just start shaking as he realizes, wow, the beauty of his bride, and this is my wedding day, and she's for me, and this is for life, and you're overwhelmed with the joy and the beauty, and you're in awe, and you tremble. Well, you see, that's the kind of fear that God wants of his people. That brings us to point three, the kind of fear expected is a fear that includes awe at God's greatness, trust in God's goodness, and love that's shown to him in obedience. The fear that God expects includes awe at his greatness. Think just for a moment of the sun. So powerful is its brightness that if you look directly at it, on a cloudless day, it can burn your eyes out, even though it's 92 million miles away. And then think about the power of the God who created that sun, and we just stand in awe. There's apparently a, a solar eclipse coming up on April 8, and you, even when it's the sun is eclipsed, you still can't look. You'll damage your eyes. We think, wow. That's just the sun, and God is so much beyond that. And we say with the psalmist David, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? It's a kind of awe that a healthy fear of God has. And then there's trust in God's goodness. Scripture frequently uses the word trust and fear in parallel with each other. I think of Psalm 34, where we're told, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. You would only trust him because you know he's good, and he's not going to hurt you. He's there to love you. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Verse 9, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There's no want to those who fear him, because he's a shepherd who will make sure you have no lack. Or Psalm 115, there again we see trust and fear used in parallel. You who fear the Lord, trust the Lord, for he is your help and your shield. So the kind of fear that's expected is one that has awe at God's greatness, trust in his goodness, and then love in response to his graciousness. What does our love for God look like? How do we express that? Do we write love letters to God or text messages telling God we love him and we're thankful to him? Well... If our prayers and our singing is viewed as that, sure. And that's a good thing to do. We should love God and tell him we love him in prayer and in song. But in our passage here, fear of God and the the love that's tied to the fear of God is shown by obeying God. Moses said to the people in verse 20, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. Or positively stated, so that you may obey. And scripture frequently ties walking with God in his commandments, obeying him with fearing him. I think of Deuteronomy 10. We read, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, and what does that involve? To walk in his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord. There we see fear of God involves walking with him, which shows your love for him. And there are many other passages that illustrate that. Think of the last verses of Ecclesiastes. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, writes Solomon. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Jesus echoes that when he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And you know what? When you stand in awe of God, And when you're trusting his goodness and loving him for his graciousness, you're going to have a kind of fear of him that prevents you from fearing man. And that will enable you to do like the midwives did and disobey sinful authorities who are telling you to do sinful things. That's what will give you the courage to obey God rather than man when there's a clash between what God wants you to do and what other humans are telling you to do. But Charles Spurgeon sums up what the fear of God our Heavenly Father looks like with these words. He says, we stand before God, not afraid, but full of delight, like a child who rejoices to see his father's wealth, his father's wisdom, and his father's power. He is happy and at home but feeling oh so little. Happy and at home, but feeling so little. And I might add, striving to please his father by lovingly and respectfully obeying him. So that's the kind of fear of God that he expects of his people. Maybe you're thinking, well, that's not very comforting because... If loving God goes hand-in-hand with obeying Him, I so often fall short, I disobey, and that shows a lack of love. I so often don't trust my God and His promises. And I so often don't stand in awe of Him the way I should. Or maybe you say, I am just standing in fear of God's judgment on my si- of my sin because I know I've done wrong. And I know I deserve his wrath. I've sinned. And you're living in fear of hell. That's quite a predicament. We then have to ask, how do we get this healthy, holy fear of God to grow within our hearts? That's our fourth point. This kind of fear enlivened. How do we develop this healthy fear of God? We need to approach another mountain. Not Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion, on which we find another little mountain called Mount Calvary, on which the cross of Christ stands. The author of Hebrews sets Mount Sinai and Mount Zion in contrast with each other in Hebrews 12. And he shows us that Mount Calvary is a mountain that we can approach God on. You see, when Jesus ascended Mount Calvary, he was carrying a cross. And when he did so, he was in essence breaking through that barrier at the foot of Mount Sinai, breaking through that police tape that said, Do not cross. And when Jesus did so, it was deadly dangerous for him. His heart was filled with fear at the thought of approaching God and crossing through that barrier. That's why he said, oh, Father, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Luke says his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground as he was approaching God. Why was this such a fearful thing for Jesus? because he was approaching the Holy God covered in sin. Not his sin, but my sin, your sin, the sin of all who believe in him. He's acting as the true mediator, but when he approaches the Holy God covered in sin, he will be consumed and destroyed. And that's what happens to Jesus when he goes up on Mount Calvary. The darkness of God's judgment fell. The fires of God's wrath were poured out upon his son. The earth quaked in a sign of God's judgment and he was consumed as the fires of God's wrath fell upon him on Mount Calvary. But you know what the good news is, brothers and sisters? The fires of God's wrath burned themselves out on Mount Calvary. There's no fuel for the fires of God's wrath left there. It's kind of like, you know, when the Forest fighters are trying to fight a wildfire. What do they do? They need to create a safe space for themselves. So they set an area on fire intentionally, let it burn, and they run to that spot and stand where the fires have burned. And then when the raging inferno of the forest fire comes near, it goes around them because there's no fuel left for the fire there. Well, that's Mount Calvary. If you approach God on Mount Calvary, you come to him at his invitation, there is no judgment, no wrath. The fires of God's wrath will not hurt you because they fell once when Jesus died on the cross and they will not come there again. Mount Calvary is a safe space where you can approach God and God shows that you can approach him. He shows that the barrier, that that police tape, if you want to call it, that do not cross line has been removed because when Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn. That's God's way of saying, you can approach me now. I'm not off limits. Your sin no longer separates us. So each one of us must meet God. And the question is, are we going to approach him at his invitation and go to Mount Calvary and receive forgiveness? Or is he going to approach us on the day of judgment at Mount Sinai? Mount Sinai, the day of judgment, if that's where you are standing at Mount Sinai, apart from Christ, there is no safe space, no boundary no protection which you can hide behind where God's judgment won't touch you. Come to Mount Calvary. That's where the grace of God is shown. I think of the lines from the hymn Amazing Grace. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved." There again, we see fear in two senses. Grace taught my heart to fear. God taught us to fear him by showing us the grace of forgiveness. We look at the cross. We see how horrible our sin is. We see how damning the consequence of our sin is and how costly the rescue is. And we're overwhelmed by the love of God in Christ that he would experience that instead of me. And that causes us to shake and tremble as we are overwhelmed by the undeserved love of God. Maybe you remember that hymn, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Do you know that grace of God's forgiveness? The greatness of your sin... But the beauty of being forgiven and feel that awe that God loves you that much. Then we also have our fears relieved because the gospel says, do not fear God's wrath and judgment. Hell came to Christ on the cross and God is just. He's not going to punish your sin twice. Once by punishing Jesus and then punish you again. Nope. The fires of God's wrath burned themselves out on Mount Calvary. So make sure you come there at Jesus' invitation and know that all your sins are forgiven. That will give you holy, healthy fear of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace in Christ Jesus. Father, may each one of us be those who come at your invitation to Mount Calvary. For there we have a safe space, a refuge. There we have a place where we need not fear your judgment. And Lord, if there be any who are not right with you, cause them to come to Mount Calvary today, that they might not have to face your just judgment on Mount Sinai on the day of judgment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by singing number 433, Amazing Grace, and then without further announcement, we will have the opportunity to give of our gifts to God through an offering.